You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 287, 496. Last week, we left off with the Patriots retaking Augusta, Georgia. After Cornwallis limped away from the battle at Guilford Courthouse and moved his army to Wilmington, North Carolina on the coast, British control of the southern colonies was pretty much limited to the coastal towns of Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia. The last inland holdout was Fort 96 in the South Carolina backcountry. 96 had been a frontier town for decades. It got its name because it was believed to be 96 miles from the Cherokee village of Kiowee. Since its founding in 1737, 96 had been an important trading post between colonists and native tribes. By the Revolution, it had grown into a town of several hundred people. It had a courthouse, a jail, various taverns and shops. After the British occupied South Carolina in 1780, they had set up a string of outposts in order to pacify the entire colony. Fort 96 became one of the key British outposts. Deep in the backcountry, 96 is about 150 miles northwest of Charleston and about 50 miles north of Augusta. Fort 96 sat on the high ground near the town. It was a well-defended earthen star fort with two blockhouses and ditches around the exterior. When the British moved north, Cornwallis left Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger in command of the fort. Kruger was a New Yorker. His family had large sugar and molasses businesses in Jamaica, but they lived in New York. Kruger went to school at King's College and managed the family business. Before the Revolution, he was a prominent member of New York society. He was the governor of King's College and sat on the governor's royal council. When the war began, Kruger had to lay low given his loyalist leanings. Once the British took New York in late 1776, Kruger took a commission as a lieutenant colonel in the British Army and took command of a battalion in the brigade commanded by his father-in-law, Oliver Delancey. Most of Kruger's men were New England loyalists. His unit traveled south for the first real British incursion in the region, helping to capture Savannah in late 1778. He also led his men at the Siege of Charleston and again at the Battle of Camden. In June 1780, shortly after Charleston fell to the British, Kruger took command at Fort 96. Kruger wasted no time building up the defenses. He laid out a star fort design and had militia and slaves spend months building huge earthen walls and other defenses. The fort became a loyalist base of operations for raids 
and also a holding place for rebel prisoners. As a result, the force became a target once the Continentals under General Nathaniel Green began to reassert control of the region. With the British withdrawal from Camden back to Charleston in the spring of 1781, Fort 96 became the largest inland loyalist stronghold in the entire South. Kruger knew that Continentals would target his fort. He spent the prior year building up those defenses and preparing for the attack. His earthen star fort, built on the high ground near town, was only part of his defenses. His men also built a series of embankments and trenches, securing a local water supply just in case of siege. For his garrison, Kruger had his own 1st Battalion of 165 New York Loyalists, along with the 3rd Battalion of 253 New Jersey Loyalists. He also had several hundred local Loyalist militia at the fort. To support the garrison, he had three small brass cannons. Kruger offered to let the militia leave when it was obvious that they were going to come under attack. If they were defeated in battle at the fort, there was a good chance that they could be executed. Most of the militia, however, stayed. If they returned home, they were almost as likely to be killed by Patriot partisans. These men were ready to die at the fort in support of king and country. Before Lord Ralden had left Camden, he had ordered Kruger to abandon Fort 96 and withdraw to Augusta. Kruger, however, never received these orders since the Patriots intercepted the couriers. In May of 1781, General Greene's Continental Army arrived at Fort 96. Greene had over 900 Continentals, supplemented by several hundred more militia. Even with his overwhelming numbers, Greene was doubtful that he could push through the fort's defenses, at least not without suffering some heavy casualties. Additional forces under Andrew Pickens and late horse Harry Lee were still besieging Augusta when Greene arrived, and those men might become available later. Greene therefore opted to besiege the fort and compel its surrender. The siege began on May 22nd. The Polish engineer, Colonel Tadeusz Kosciuszko, oversaw the siege. Kosciuszko had been a key to building American defenses at West Point and at other places further north, but he had come south with Horatio Gates to lend his services in this region. When Green replaced Gates, Kosciuszko remained. Under General Green, Kosciuszko was critical to getting the army across various rivers as they had dueled with the British under Cornwallis in the race to the Dan. At Fort 96, Kosciuszko used the traditional siege tactic of digging zigzag trenches and moving closer to the fort walls. It took time, but it protected the men from approaching over an open field. Kruger countered by sending out raiding parties to attack the trenches during the night. He also fired on the trenches with his cannons. These efforts slowed down the advance, but they couldn't stop it. After about two weeks, the Americans had dug trenches within 30 yards of the fort's walls. The attackers also built a tower a tactic they had used to take several other smaller forts, the tower allowed the American riflemen to kill some of the artillerymen in the fort. Kruger countered this by using sandbags to increase the height of one of his own towers inside the fort in order to shoot at the Americans in their tower. 
he also tried to use hotshot from his cannons to set the American tower on fire. The Americans were able to protect the tower and countered by using flaming arrows to fire into the fort. Kruger ended up having to destroy several of his own wooden roofs in order to prevent them from being set on fire. On June 3rd, Green sent his adjutant, Colonel Otho Holland Williams, to approach the fort under a flag of truce and demand its surrender. Kruger refused, and the siege continued. A few days later, on June 7th, Light Horse Harry Lee arrived with his legion of 150 men. Lee had taken Augusta and left the militia in command there so that he could get to Fort 96 and assist Green. Lee's legion had with them some of the prisoners that had been captured at Augusta. Part of his legion, with the prisoners, passed along the road right next to the fort. Although Lee later said that his march was made by mistake, Colonel Kruger took it as a provocation, marching the prisoners in front of his men. He ordered his cannons to open fire on the column, killing both the enemy and their prisoners. Lee used his men to focus on the blockhouse on the other side of the fort. He was trying to cut off the fort's water supply. Kruger continued to use night raids to keep the attackers at bay. But Kruger also became aware of his vulnerability to losing his water supplies. He dug a well inside the fort, but it came up dry. Instead, he had some of his black loyalists use a communications trench to sneak down to the water supply at night and carry water back to the garrison. Now, despite his efforts, Kruger knew that the British garrison's days were numbered unless a relief force could come for them. Unfortunately for Kruger, that is exactly what the British hoped to do. Lord Walden became aware of the situation from his new headquarters in Charleston. During the siege, a British fleet arrived, bringing Ralden three new regiments of British regulars. Even so, two things made it difficult for Ralden to launch a relief force to rescue the garrison at Fort 96. First thing was, he was really sick with malaria. For some time, it was unclear if he could even remain in a saddle. Second, he was not in command at Charleston. The man left in charge of Charleston, Lieutenant Colonel Nisbet Balfour, also approved of Ralden's plan to relieve the fort. However, the arrival of reinforcements also included Lieutenant Colonel Paston Gould, who commanded one of the regiments. Gould had seniority over both Balfour and Ralden, giving him authority to make all command decisions. Ralden wanted to take two of the three new regiments with him to relieve Fort 96. Gould, however, was concerned about the defenses at Charleston and refused to let Ralden march away with the majority of his regulars. There were rumors that a French fleet might be on its way to Charleston. If the bulk of the army was inland when the French arrived, that could really spell disaster for the British. Finally, the officers reached a compromise. The three regiments would remain in Charleston, but Ralden would take with him the light infantry and grenadier companies from each of the regiments. In total, Ralden had about 1,800 men in his relief force. If you add in the Fort 96 garrison, British forces would outnumber the Americans by nearly two to one once Ralden arrived. General Green had good intelligence, and he learned of the relief column even before it left Charleston. He sent dispatches to General Sumter and Colonel Marion, 
hoping that they could use militia forces to attack the column before it could reach the fort. If the British had command disputes, they were nothing compared to what the Americans seemed to face. At first, Sumter gathered his forces, promising 600 militia, but instead of attacking the British on the march, he ordered his men and Sumters to march directly to Fort 96, where they could face the relief column together. Then Sumter got the idea that Ralden's actual target was Fort Granby, where Sumter had left his supply base at this point. So instead of marching his troops, he held back to see if he needed to defend Fort Granby instead. Colonel Marion, who did not seem to want to fight alongside Green or Sumter, simply wrote to Green that he could not give up his current position without allowing the enemy access to the region's food and supplies. So by the time everyone got on the same page, Ralden's relief column had passed through Orangeburg and was headed directly to Fort 96. Sumter's militia army was at this point behind him. One of Sumter's militia regiments did attack Ralden's rear guard. Ralden had deployed foragers, and it looked like the Americans could strike a devastating blow. South Carolina militia under Colonel Charles Middleton led between 150 and 200 militia horsemen against the British rear. Unfortunately for the attackers, Ralden had only made it look like his rear was in disarray in order to invite just such an attack. British mounted infantry, hidden nearby, charged the militia, landing a devastating blow. The surprised militia lost 34 men killed. Colonel Middleton returned to Sumter's camp with only 45 of his militia. The remainder had fled into the woods and scattered. The British suffered the loss of four officers and between 20 and 30 soldiers killed. With Lord Ralden's relief column approaching the fort, and with Sumter and Marion nowhere around with their militia armies, General Green decided that he could not continue the siege. General Kosciusko had been trying to dig a tunnel under the fort wall to blow it up, but it wouldn't be completed in time before the relief column arrived. So Green had to decide whether to storm the fort before the relief column arrived, or just withdraw. Colonel Latour's Harry Lee supported an attack on the fort. Withdrawing without a fight would harm morale and might impact the willingness of militia to turn out in the future. On the morning of June 18th, two regiments under the command of Colonel Richard Campbell did in fact storm the fort wall. They sent in what's known as a forlorn hope to cut through the defenses while the rest of the attackers kept up a stream of fire against the fort to prevent them from firing on the attackers. The Forlorn Hope were essentially people who were giving up their lives to cut a hole for the larger army to get through. Seeing this attack, Colonel Kruger sent two companies of provincials out of the back of the fort, each ran around the fort from a different direction, storming the American Forlorn Hope from both sides with bayonets. The Americans put up a fight, but were heavily outnumbered and took heavy casualties. In the end, the survivors withdrew back to the main American lines. The following morning, Green's army packed up and withdrew, leaving the British in control of the fort. For once, the conflict ended without bloody recriminations. Green had left a guard at a house several miles away from the fort to protect Kruger's wife and children. When he pulled out, that detachment was actually left behind. Kruger, however, grateful for Green's thoughtfulness to his family, 
allowed the detachment safe passage to rejoin the main army. The two days after Green's departure, Lord Ralden's relief column arrived at Fort 96. The following day, Ralden learned that the Continentals were camped only 16 miles away. Leaving behind his baggage at the fort, Ralden launched a night march on the night of June 22nd to attack Green's army. As he did with Cornwallis, Green continued to withdraw, avoiding an engagement with a superior force. Ralden pursued for a time, but he was not ready to embark on a campaign that would chase the Continentals across hundreds of miles like Cornwallis had done. After marching for about 40 miles, Lord Ralden gave up the chase and returned back to Fort 96. Now, Ralden believed that Fort 96 would remain an inviting target once he returned to Charleston, and he could not simply remain inland. He informed the local militia leaders that they could come with him and take possession of Patriot plantations that were still within British lines. If they wanted to remain, he would leave a small force of regulars to help them defend the area. While the locals were deciding, Ralden left about half his force at the fort and took the other half to march back to Orangeburg, then moving toward Fort Granby to the north. As he did, he requested another regiment of regulars from Charleston. Although the regiment started to march, it ended up retreating due to some miscommunications. Ralden ended up fearing that Green would catch him isolated with only half his forces and so before anything could happen, he withdrew again back to Fort 96. Green, however, was not thinking about any sort of attack. He was retreating with his army back toward Charlotte, North Carolina. He wanted to engage in battle, but not until he had more troops. Green wrote to Isaac Shelby, hoping that he could bring about a thousand over-mountain men from the frontier, but Shelby responded that he was in negotiations with the Cherokee, and could not have his men leave their homes for at least a few weeks. Green also attempted to get his promised reinforcements from Virginia. But with the British Army already in Virginia and threatening to take more of that state, Virginia was not only not sending its promised reinforcements, it was keeping any reinforcements that tried to pass through the state to fight against the British there. Green wrote other leaders in the Carolinas and Georgia but no one would commit to showing up with the numbers he needed. So, without his reinforcements, Green just kept his distance. Araldon had marched up to the Congaree Creek near Fort Granby by July 1st. The brutal summer heat had taken its toll. The British had 50 soldiers die from heat exhaustion during the march. They found themselves harassed by the enemy. Colonel Lee managed to lure a British foraging party into an ambush, killing three officers and 45 men, and taking their horses and weapons. The ambush and loss of his cavalry convinced Lord Ralden to pull back to Orangeburg. Soon thereafter, Green finally got some reinforcements after Sumter and Marion showed up. He advanced on Orangeburg, but found the British in a good defensive position and declined to attack. Instead, he marched around them, hoping to draw the British out of their defenses but the British refused to take the bait. Continental spies returned to Fort 96, only to find the garrison was packing up and preparing to leave. Kruger was going to join Ralden at Orangeburg. Before Kruger could combine his forces with Ralden, Green withdrew his Continentals, 
to give them time to rest and recuperate in the high hills, away from some of the most brutal summer heat. It seems as Lord Ralden had also had enough. Although his army remained in Orangeburg, Ralden sought to exercise the leave of absence that Cornwallis had granted him months earlier. He had fought this campaign through the brutal summer heat while still suffering from malaria. With the Continentals having withdrawn for the moment, Ralden returned to Charleston and got on a ship bound for England. With the British having abandoned Fort 96, the Patriot militia occupied the fort without a fight. And with it, they claimed control over all of South Carolina, outside of the small area around Charleston. The Carolina militia would continue to harass the enemy over the summer, but we'll have to leave those skirmishes for a future episode. Next week, we're going to return to Virginia, where General Cornwallis has finally arrived and with his larger force, attempts to take control of the state. His raids include a raid on that of the governor of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, at his home in Monticello. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, now a part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporter, TJ Walker. I also want to welcome new Patreon supporters at the Standard Bearer level, Rodney Ankeny and Jerome Wilson. Now, everyone who supports this podcast at the $10 or higher level will receive a magnet each and every month with a different flag from the American Revolution. Also, if you want to support the show with a one-time gift, you can find links to PayPal or Venmo on my blog and website. I really appreciate everyone who can help me to support this show financially. I also want to mention one other way you can support the show at no cost to yourself. With the holiday season coming on fast, many of us will be buying items on Amazon. Let's face it, it's easy. We all do it. If you start your Amazon shopping by clicking on one of the book links on my blog or website, then go on to buy whatever you were going to buy anyway, I get a commission on the entire sale. You don't have to buy the book that's in the link. 
you just have to use the link to tell Amazon that I brought you to the site, then buy whatever you were going to buy anyway. It's a great way to support the podcast without spending any money that you weren't going to spend anyway. Also, I want to remind everyone that our live Zoom meeting will take place for the American Revolution Roundtable on Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. We're going to discuss Benedict Arnold, and you can join in this live discussion and participate along with the rest of us. We also plan to have a special guest join us for the discussion, Jack Kelly. I interviewed Jack some time ago for one of the books he wrote about Arnold's leadership during the war at the Battle of Valcor. If you're already on my mailing list, you've already received the link, but if you want a link to the Zoom meeting, please email me for one. This week, we covered the fall of Fort 96, which gave the Patriots control of almost all of South Carolina. Along with the fall of Augusta that we covered last week, these actions really gave the Patriots control of the entire South, except for Florida and a few small areas along the coast notably Savannah and Charleston. The British relief of Fort 96 was also the last hurrah for Lord Ralden, who had taken command of the South after Cornwallis moved north. I mentioned at the end of the episode that Ralden set sail for London shortly after he evacuated the fort. He was only 26 years old at the time, but he was exhausted by his exertions in America. Unfortunately for him, his trip back was not as smooth as he would have liked. The ship was captured by French privateers, and he became a prisoner aboard the fleet led by Admiral de Grasse. He was exchanged rather quickly and eventually returned home on parole. After the war, he took on several titles, eventually becoming known as the Second Earl of Moria and the Marquess of Hastings. He would serve for many years in the House of Lords and would also rise to the rank of full general during the Napoleonic Wars. Ralden, who held a title in Ireland, was a tireless advocate for reforms in Ireland. At one point, there was a movement to make him prime minister in the 1790s, but instead he would go on to become commander-in-chief of Scotland and later governor-general of India. Many of the loyalists who defended Fort 96 appreciated Lord Ralden's efforts. After the war, many of them relocated to Nova Scotia, where they named the town of Ralden in his honor. Now, Colonel Kruger, the Fort 96 commander, would continue the fight, leading men at the Battle of Utah Springs, which I will cover in a future episode. After that, he returned to New York. There, the Patriots had confiscated all of his extensive properties, and so shortly before the British evacuated New York City, Kruger left for England. There, he settled in Yorkshire, and spent some time lobbying for reimbursement for his losses in America. His brother, Henry Kruger, would be elected to Parliament from Bristol in 1784. But John would live in Yorkshire for the remainder of his life, never returning to America. If you want to read more about Lord Ralden, there's a pretty good biography called Francis Ralden Hastings, Marquis of Hastings, by Paul Nelson. Now, you may have noticed that Nelson uses the last name of Ralden Hastings, which was a change to his name after the war. He also uses his first name, Francis. Now, I've avoided that because of the warning I heard in the movie Stripes. Any of you guys call me Francis, and I'll kill you. Ooh. <laughs> you just made the list, buddy. 
Lighten up, Francis. <laughs> but back to the book. It's a relatively short one, just under 200 pages, not counting notes and index. The first half of the book covers Ralden in the American Revolution, so lots of emphasis on that part of his life. The book is from 2005. You can buy it on Amazon, using one of my links, please, or borrow it for free on archive.org. Again, the book is Francis Ralden Hastings, Marquis of Hastings, by Paul Nelson. My online recommendation is the Fort 96 page on carolana.com. That's C-A-R-L-A-N-A dot com. If you haven't visited the site before, they really have some amazing summaries of almost any battle or skirmish that took place in North or South Carolina during the war. The site has detailed information based on primary accounts of the battle and even lists some of the units and officers that fought there. So if you're interested in really any battle or skirmish involving the Carolinas, you really should be a regular on carolina.com. My question this week asks, as the American Revolution ended on September 3rd, 1783, should it also be celebrated? All right, so I'm going to discuss the end of the war, so if you're trying to avoid spoilers, you may want to skip ahead. September 3rd, 1783 was the day that the parties signed the Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War. At the time, no one in America was even aware of the fact, since it took weeks for the news to arrive. Congress did not approve that treaty until January 14, 1784. By the time the parties had signed the treaty, the war had already pretty much ended. After the Battle of Yorktown in October of 1781, the British retreated back to a few occupied cities and never went on the offensive again. The parties had already signed a provisional peace treaty on January 20th, 1783, before finally agreeing to the formal and more detailed treaty in September. So the final treaty signing date was not terribly important to people at the time. And of course, the date everyone remembers is July 4th, which is the date the Declaration of Independence was first written. I suppose if the war had ended very suddenly, like World War I did, we might be more inclined to celebrate the war's end. But since it faded away over several years, that really doesn't give us a specific date to celebrate. And I guess as a practical matter, September 3rd is often Labor Day, so having two celebrated holidays that fall within days of each other, or even on the exact same day, really wouldn't make much sense. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.